Welcome to the Good and Basic Podcast. We are actually broadcasting this from an exotic location, an incredibly exotic location. Hadrian's Wall in, I believe it's Northumberland, England, is that correct? Well, I live here, so it doesn't feel exotic at all. Oh, okay. It's completely mundane. Uh, as, as you can guess, we have a special guest on the podcast here. This is Lloyd. Um, he runs the YouTube channel Lindy Beige, which is quite excellent. Oh, um, we've actually never had an interview on the podcast before, so or we've never had a guest on the podcast before, so this is kind of a... Um, a special event for us too, so this is wonderful. Um, it'll be listed as a special episode rather than as a, a regular episode. But uh, oh. so there we go. So of course we have myself, Joseph. We have other Joseph who is also present, and then um, Lloyd of Lindy Beach. So thank you very much for being here with us. Uh, well, you've chosen a glorious evening for it. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Are we really broadcasting? <laughs> uh, People well, of the world are seeing this right now, live. I could say anything. At the moment that they're hearing this, yes. At the moment we're saying this, no. Uh, we, We're we not are, broadcasting, are we? No. no. no okay. So we are unfortunately as dead as the Romans. Um, but like the Romans, people will be able to come back and study us uh, post facto. So, okay, uh, so that's, right. that's positive. Um, okay, so what we kind of wanted to use as the launching off point today is um, we spent all afternoon at a Roman fort here in England along Hadrian's Wall. And, and I want to reiterate, we are literally sitting on Hadrian's Wall right this moment. Well, and, you are. I'm not. Uh, that, that's technically true. Lloyd is on a little section that's off. It's a, remind me what it's called, a mile fort? Mile castle. Mile castle. That's yep. right. Which are these castles that are set up a, a, a mile apart all along yep. Adrian's wall. So that's um, pretty great. With There's monotonous sheep. regularity, even on the sides of cliffs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Standard design. You do not deviate from a good design. That's yeah. the proper design. Yeah. It's the correct design. Yeah. Do that design. Nature got it wrong. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to fix it, or at least the Roman engineers are. Okay. Yes, uh, that was in reference, in case that was a little bit obscure, to the fact that all the mile castles are the same, regardless where they are. And sometimes uh, the design doesn't necessarily suit the particular bit of landscape they find themselves placed on. Uh, I was going to but, say, hey it kind of seems to me to make more sense. We're in a little bit of a valley here, and it kind of seems to me to this make more sense. This is where the mile is. Oh, okay, okay, okay. All right. <laughs> all right, Mr. Roman Engineer, I give, I give. Um, so... We are right here on Hadrian's Wall. Um, mm -hmm. Just a couple of miles down the road is Vindolanda, mm -hmm. which is actually, if I remember rightly, a Celtic or Gaelic word that means something like shining, which is kind of cool. Um, and it's an excavated Roman fort from... Uh, uh, 82 I, AD to about 400 AD. 82 AD to 400 300. AD. There's, there's multiple layers. It's a, there's a museum attached, so on and so forth. And, uh, and we were, uh, you know, uh, privileged enough or lucky enough to have uh, Lloyd along with us who... Uh, is is an expert in a lot of things, and so that's I pointed great. at things. <laughs> did that. Um, if you aren't familiar with uh, Lloyd, I, we'd like to encourage you to check out his channel in the show notes. That'll be there, and in the YouTube description, um, a link to his channel where he has several videos about Vindolanda. So, okay, oh, I think uh, not yet. <laughs> oh, not yet. I beg your pardon. He he I will have shot footage he, for videos. For I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. You yeah. shot the footage today, and hopefully. Uh, at some point, that footage will come out. Don't uh, hold your breath. <laughs> uh, there, there's some excellent videos on topics such as uh, Hierapolis and oh, wow, uh, the largest cannons in the British Empire. That's Malta, yeah. That was Malta. Also, uh, everything wrong with one still frame in Gladiator. An excellent first starter. <laughs> there was a time when my computer stopped working properly and I couldn't use moving footage. So I had to do just videos, just using stills. So I did that one and I did a whole series on the, the film Ironclad. So if you watch those videos, it's, it's just stills. Really? Because my computer was on the blink and it just couldn't handle moving footage. So Strange. I, I didn't notice it with the Ironclad ones because I guess you changed frame enough, but excellent, excellent videos. Particularly because I will never watch 
medieval or ancient set video movies the same again ever i've ruined them for you <laughs> no you've made them much more enjoyable oh, um good. i don't know there's value in the fourth wall in being able to just absorb into the world of a movie but there's also mm -hmm. some value in being able to distinguish it and you know for me it's not that difficult to get immersed in a film right but those tags are very helpful for being able to separate uh, particularly historical information because unfortunately that's where a bulk of the common person including myself's historical information comes from until mm -hmm. it is corrected so i found it very helpful well, happy to be of service thank you i appreciate that <laughs> um, fire arrows <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Vindolanda, uh, you know, hopefully that footage eventually does turn into videos. Um, I'm curious for, um, for you two or for all three of us, after having kind of had an hour to, to digest all those experiences, so experiences and so forth, going through mm -hmm. the museum, uh, looking at the, the artifacts that they've dug up, uh, looking at all those ox skulls and uh, the keys that are all uniform and all those things, um, mm -hmm. and then going out to the archaeological site. Um, what 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 thoughts have you been chewing over in addition to those? What are your sort of takeaways from Vindolanda, and what do, what stood out what what stood out to you from from that site? I, I, he was looking at you. <laughs> rock, rock paper scissors. Yeah, I, Joseph, I'll go first. Right, yeah, okay. Joseph has to um, go first. Uh, so there were a lot of things that were very interesting that we did. We toured through a reconstructed section of wall done in the style that it would be when it was first built. I do remember that you did say, this is really cool, about 18 times. 18, okay, good. I wasn't counting, but it was lots. I, well, I was going to say, I would have thought it would have been more than 18, although. <laughs> okay, so there's differing scores. Uh, 18, more than 18, somewhere on there. That was really cool. But probably <laughs> the <you>. most, uh, <laughs> um, the thing that stuck out to me the most was uh, you pointed out, Lloyd, you pointed out that on the landscape, the, the evidence of the old strip farming method, the old medieval practice oh, wow, of dividing right. the land. That probably was the most interesting thing that we saw because it's got me chewing on more questions mm -hmm. as we're sitting here. I want to know how that worked. I want to know what the maximum range for a farmer from a town was because the old practice was to manage a I think a strip the of farm. The, with the benefit of the audience, we yes. explain <laughs> what I was pointing out. I, I was going to say, Absolutely. Start with I Roman saw some, the remains yeah. of some strip fields, what we call ridge and furrow or rig and furrow. Uh, on a hillside, and I, I pointed it out to uh, uh, to Joseph here, and um, it took a bit of seeing, didn't it? I had, to, I had to keep pointing to it. Can you see lines? You didn't see it straight away. Right. Um, when you know what you're looking for, you can see it. Um, when the, the light is as it is now, and by the way, it's actually quite difficult for me to oh. look at you now because the sun is right uh, smack I'll in my uh, eyes. Um, well, uh, I think we're just going to have to go. No, it, it's not going to work. When, when the light is very, very low, it's easier to see because it hits the tops of the ridges. So you have a field of an open field system uh, back in the Anglo-Saxon days where there would be a strip, perhaps four, perhaps eight yards wide. Uh, four is narrow rig and um, eight is broad rig. And there's also cord rig, which is very narrow. And these strips would be allotted to uh, different people to farm that year. So uh, one particular farmer might have the first one in the field and the third and the ninth or something. And other people would have the others. And... Um, these turn into a sort of corrugation over the centuries because each guy doesn't want to plough and throw the soil from the plough into his neighbour's field because he's giving his neighbour all the good stuff. So he goes up the one side of his uh, field and throws the, the soil into the middle of the, towards the middle of his field, turns round and does the same on the other side. And so after centuries of this, the centres of each field, each strip, uh, become deeper than uh, in between. And if that field later becomes pasture, after the, the, the open field system was, was abandoned, um, if that then becomes pasture land, it survives. And most ridge and furrow, of course, has gone. But those that have become pasture land 
consistently uh, remain. And mm. so, yes, it's a, uh, and there are parts of England where it's all over the shop. That's amazing. It's particularly interesting to me that the farmer was not living on the strip of land. They're living somewhere else, presumably in a town, and then walking out, walking out to the to those strips that are allotted for that year, and then mm -hmm. working the the land. So I, I want to understand how that worked, how much a farmer could do, what the yields were. I, well, I have a, a course for some new study. Okay. Thank you. How about how about you? Uh, I'm yeah. Th well, actually, I will jump in because there actually is something that I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by, and I'm still thinking it over and trying to figure out sort of what it means. And it is that I am sitting on a wall made by the Romans. Yes. And I am near the not well. I I'm sort of near the northern border of England. I'm in the middle of the UK. Yes. Right. And and that just that just amazes me. Um. That. I'm, I don't know that I'm sitting on a Roman wall that's, that's nowhere near Italy, nowhere near the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, it's, a, it's a testament to the incredible breadth and scope of the Roman Empire and of the Roman military and Roman culture and, and Roman engineering, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, 1,500 years, I guess now about 1,600 years after this wall was abandoned, I can still come back to it, and and it's and it's a trace of the Roman Empire, and so I'm just still kind of to, to chewing give full on credit to our yeah, to my, uh, modern colleagues. Uh, you are also sitting on quite a lot of modern concrete, which is holding the top of this together. It's been it's been consolidated and at least partially reconstructed. Yes. Yeah, so this uh, is this is a good note for our listeners that uh, the the walls of the stone that we're sitting on, there's concrete that's been put in to seal the gaps on the top, mm -hmm. uh, so that it doesn't fall apart. Uh, yes, although as we, we we spotted earlier, they haven't done that everywhere, and some so places that it, it still mostly doesn't falls apart. <laughs> and the stones, these these um, this particular size and proportion of stone, you can see the, these worked stones on the facing. Mm -hmm. um, I've uh, I've been involved in a few other archaeological projects along the wall, and we've stayed at farmhouses, and sometimes you you look at the wall of the farmhouse and you think, hmm. Those stones are remarkably similar in size, color, and proportion to the, <laughs> and, and that's because that's, they are. An awful lot of the, the farmhouses either side of the wall mm -hmm. um, got built out of these things because it's a very convenient uh, building material. Mm -hmm. So waste not, want not. Yeah. Recycling is good, apparently. Yes, very true, right? Uh, quite basic in this case, recycling yeah. <laughs> the blocks of a wall. Yeah, uh, in fact, well, yeah, I, uh, for the benefit of our listeners and probably our viewers too, uh, the particular mile fort that we're sitting on the edge of right now has actually now it seems to have been turned into a sheep pen uh and so uh, th that's kind of remarkable too that you it's know this 39 is... is that right i think that's yes 39 yes good on number 39 it's not as good as 32 i mean 32 is my favorite but 39 not bad it'll do yeah, in a pitch. only seven away from perfect so right. no um okay well i don't know if, if lloyd has anything to add if not i kind of want to go deeper into into that that idea yeah, what of was what was your favorite yeah, what, uh, you, uh, oh, what stuck out to you the most favorite thing ah um uh, well, I've been to Vindland before, and so I, I suppose one of the things I was noticing was what's different. Right. Oh, uh, the, you know, the museum is, is, has been spruced up quite a lot, and I would say is definitely an improvement over its, its former self. Um, it's, it's quite plush, I would say. It's quite nicely presented. You know, the lawns are well kept and, and so forth. It's, uh, it, looked, it looked very presentable in a tourist mm -hmm. attraction sort of a way. Um, and I say this because I, if you may remember, I said something earlier today, which was a semi-secret. Should I mention it? Do you think in this video would it be safe to, or would I, that be a terrible, terrible mistake? Uh, I suppose it depends on the nature of the thing, but I, I think it would probably okay. be fine. So. Let's just say that, that, that at least. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Oh, at I know some what you're point talking about. Okay. In the past, 
uh, the reputation for the archaeology on that site was not of the highest caliber and I'll perhaps I'll leave it there because okay. I, I don't want anyone to come come and serve right, some uh, some writ on me but expensive if, lawyers if anyone wants more information they'll have to come to you personally yeah and in, maybe not even then <laughs> right but anyway so I remember that um, okay. Yes, there, there was there was some nice stuff in the in, in the museum. There was a nice uh, reconstruction of that that uh, that horse armor. Yes. Um, what the name for that is a chaffron. Chamfron, I thought. Chamfron. Yes. C h a m f r o n. I thought. Yes, I'm trying to think how I would actually say that. Um, but let's not sound. Let's not make as long as it doesn't sound too French. A chamfron. Yeah, but horse armor for the head, um, and yeah, with a couple of big tea strainers over the eyes. It was it was good. Um, and uh, some nice details of the different woods that, that they'd found, for instance. That's, I always find that useful information. About yes. Because um, today, most things are just made of wood of some sort. Right. Um, whereas um, in medieval and earlier times, people, I'm sure, would have been very conscious of what wood that would, you know, they would select for what and what, how each bit of wood had been managed and how one type of wood is more expensive than another sort of mm -hmm. wood and so forth. Um, and uh, I think it would have been far more common knowledge what was good for what, whereas today most people, it's wood. Wood yeah. is wood. Uh, yeah. Spruce for framing houses and other than that, it seems to be mostly on the aesthetic qualities, right? You might want a, a cherry wood piece of furniture or something like that for, for aesthetic qualities, but you don't know much about the underlying uh, properties and characteristics. Of yeah, it. and I always use balsa rather than mahogany for, 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 for aeroplanes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I actually have a question for you about the archaeology thing because uh, one of the things that totally surprised me and that I thought was so interesting is so we're all three of us are going around to that museum, right? Mm -hmm. And you know we run across a toilet seat and you're like, ah, I don't think that was a toilet seat, right? And and uh, <laughs> that's not quite how I put it. Close, right? So so in 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 that and in many other instances, we're going around and finding these these objects, right? And mm. and sort of actively uh, critiquing and considering what those items might really have been used for, you know, going beyond the, the plaque, sort of. Going right, beyond I was the thinking that plaque. possibly because you're from America, yeah. uh, you come over here, you see something in a museum, it's got a label that's printed in black and white by yeah. someone who's presumably terribly learned and has been yes. brought up in Britain and everyone exactly. in Britain just knows things because they're magical. Well, and they have magical. an accent too, I and mean, it just screams um, authority. Well, I, I don't, but you do. Uh, <laughs> um, fair, fair. And... I suppose I was sort of giving you permission to doubt the labels mm. by doubting them myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I know it was before that, before the Lucite, where I, I pointed out a couple of uh, definite examples where, for goodness sake, there's no way that that is that. What is it? The, the one that uh, we ought to talk about, the battle, the battle standard briefly. It's I, two inches tall. So it's literally two inches tall. It's like that. There's it's the Vindalander battle standard. For the benefit of our listeners, this is a, a figurine of a horse. It's approximately an inch and a half long and about two inches high. And it looks like it could fit on the end of some sort of pole. And yep. originally there was an interpretation that this was the battle standard that you'd rally around and you'd be looking across the battlefield to find it. And this then, is their star find. Come see the Vindalander battle it's, standard. It's, it's on their branding material. It's part yeah. of their logo. It's on it's on everything. And on it, the t-shirts. And all the t-shirts, it's, it's this size. On the door, it's this size. And they used to have a, a huge flower bed that was in the size of it, in the shape of it uh, <laughs> out the front. That's gone That's now. That's intense. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's like that. Just how good, the, you may, in the middle of a battle, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, all sorts of, Terrible things happening left, right, and centre. The guy to the left of you just suddenly gets hit in the throat by an arrow, and the 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 the, the retreat is sounded on on a trumpet. And you look around the battlefield and all the chaos and riot and flying blood and dust for something this tall. How? No, 
battle standard. I don't think it's a battle standard. <laughs> the other interpretation is that it's a, a figurine or a decoration for an ox cart, which may indeed be more likely. Yeah. Or a... <laughs> yeah. Oh, we don't know that it's that, but um, maybe it was a, uh, a a miniature figurine of a battle standard for a, for a model in a Roman museum. Which had little little guys about you know like yeah. action man size. Yeah, yes. so that's a, a little Joe. a little miniature flag or yeah, like a yeah. GI Joe. Yeah, so that that seems yeah. to make a little more sense to me, right? Yeah, if so, it was originally so that or or a cart fitting. Speaking of that, one of the things that struck me in the museum was a number of toy swords that were obviously children mm. sized, something yeah. in the range of a foot long, and and not crudely carved, but uh, and again, it's hard to tell because one of time. Was, but yeah. But, uh, you know, whittled together. This is the, something you could imagine a father carving for his son so he can play soldier, mm -hmm. just like his dad. I mean, that's a really interesting detail that this is not just a, a military camp, but also a family camp. There's uh, the family quarters outside. Yeah, I think in round numbers, if I remember, if I remember reading the, the, the descriptive cards correctly, it's something like a thousand soldiers and about 5,000 uh, hangers on, if you will, families, right. traders, so on and so forth, yeah. at, 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 at least one point in the fort's history. Mm -hmm. so, so mostly non-military people. Um, I, actually, I just want to kind of follow up on that. The, it was so interesting to see you uh, critique all those uh, all those descriptions, right? And I and like I think you did it very respectfully and professionally. I don't mean to imply anything. Eh, well, I mean humorously, but but not not certainly okay. you weren't being uh, being disrespectful or anything like that, right? Um, but uh, I just <laughs> two inches tall. <laughs> Lucius, can you see that? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll let you got the... good eyes. I was going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, would you hold on a minute? Stop trying to stab me. I need to see where my guys are. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave the viewers to decide if, if we're being disrespectful or not. Okay, I, right, yeah. That's open for interpretation, I guess, at this point. But um, Oh, no, I, I, I think we're fine. But um, Anyway, it was just so interesting to, to, to see you do that and to think about how, you know, for, for most of my life I go to museums, and although I, I can go to multiple museums and I can read other books and I can do a little bit of critical reading, mm -hmm. you, you know, uh, in no small part because of your uh, background in archaeology, were doing very intense, deep, and critical readings of all of these artifacts uh, and, and looking at those descriptions and saying, is that plausible? Is that not? So I'm curious, like, uh, I, I don't know, am I, am I correct in, in, in saying that, that it's sort of your archaeological background is coming to bear there, and so you're, you're looking at all those artifacts, not just as, as a viewer, but yes. also as an evaluator, almost as a um, curator when yourself. You, when you come to some big topic... I, when I first started learning Lindy Hop swing dance, for instance, uh -huh. you go to a lesson, you learn four moves, yeah. and then, you're, okay, I've got four moves, and then you do another four the next, and you've got eight moves. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you think, how many of the moves do I know? Mm -hmm. what, what proportion of the dance have I learned now? Yeah. And it's only when you've been learning the dance for years and years, you realize there is no end. There's an infinite number of moves, and you can always make up more and always do more variations on them. So there, there is no answer. There's no point at which you've learned half the, mm -hmm. the, the system. Well, when you study something for a reasonably long time, eventually you get a feel for how much there is to know and how sure we are of the things that we know within it. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm now reasonably comfortable about how sure we can be about certain things. Mm. And so I know that in the field of archaeology, there's an awful lot of conject conjecture and just current consensus that, that will then change perhaps because it's done so in the past mm -hmm. um, so yes what how things were used interpretations of what things are uh, they change and very few of them are absolutely certain um, uh, something that for instance like th those weighing scales we were looking at those weighing scales 
they work as weighing scales and the same weights and gradations crop up mm -hmm. again and again. You can be pretty, pretty certain those are weighing scales. But if you find a plank with a hole in it and someone tells you it's a loose eat, it's a plank with a <laughs> hole in it. You know, there's no one on earth who can say absolutely definitely that that particular plank with that particular hole in it, that was a bit small. It was like, it was like that big. Yeah. About four inches across. I don't know where you live, but you know, Lucy's tend to be more like that sort of size where I am. Um, uh, yeah. So, but then I, I suppose I was also making, com making conversation, you know, because I just wanted, do you think that's a Lucy? Yeah, They're yeah, saying yeah. it's a Lucy. <laughs> I really appreciated that game of interpretation because it, it's, for one thing, it's more intellectually engaging. For another thing, it seems to be more intellectually honest, particularly mm -hmm. where uh, archaeology is based in interpretation. You, you make good interpretations and bad interpretations, and there's a difference between the two. Mm -hmm. and, and qualifications and training matter, but uh, it is still an interpretive game. Yeah. And so there's, uh, like you said, some things we can be very sure about, some things we can be less sure about. It's interesting when you mentioned the Lindy Hop, um, one thing that I find fascinating in languages is that there tend to be a very small number of words that do the bulk of the work. Right. Something like, you know, 200 words that do most of the talking and then a vast variety past that. English has far more words than I will ever know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it is interesting that after you reach a certain point, you start to realize that, oh, this is the word that will appear on, on a, an advanced exam and probably nowhere else. Right, and you know that there isn't anyone on the planet who knows all the words of English. Mm -hmm. Yes. Not, there's not anyone who's that expert. So there isn't anyone who can, with absolute authority, tell you that word doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right, but there is a point where you, you've mastered well past the first 200 that do the most of the work, up to the 2000 range, and you start to feel very competent that, you know, you can say with some certainty that you've mastered it. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can detect whether something sounds English, or right. break down uh, yeah. what its probable meaning is in context. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly get very good at playing the game, even if, even if you can't reach quote-unquote perfection, right? Even if you can't learn all the words, you can still get very, very good at playing the game. And you can get very good at continuing to learn and play the game as you go, right? Which, in this case, would be going to museums and, and well, looking at the, the toilet seat and saying, I don't buy that. You know, or, 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 you know, we're allowed to think through these mm -hmm. things, right? Maybe you come to the conclusion that, that it is correct. You know, I was, I was just thinking maybe ceramics are sort of those 200 commonest words in English, right? The, the archaeological equivalent, because, because cause ceramics are everywhere, right? They, mm -hmm. they, they tend to preserve very well. And then maybe, oh, I don't know, something like textiles are yep. more like your, your $5 words in English, right, that pop up very rarely. Anyway, funny little thought. But, but yeah, I, I think the, the linguistic metaphor is kind of interesting. So... Right, now, weren't we going to talk about fourth generation something or other? For warfare, is that right? Fourth generation warfare, yes. Yes. Um, let's, let's take a brief foray into there. Um, and actually, I was thinking this is, this is kind of appropriate. And Well, I'll, I'll field the idea briefly to you. And, okay. Um, uh, well, and you can tell me what you think of the idea, right? Um, so. Brace yourself. <laughs> well, Honesty is a good I, I'm thing. I'm here on the wall. It's a solid foundation, so... Um, so, and, and speaking about fourth generation warfare is actually kind of interesting here. We were talking about in, in the museum, we were talking about how the Romans, uh, when they conquered people, you know, those people have different religions than the Romans. They have different gods. Mm -hmm. And the way that the Romans settled that problem, in contrast to many other cultures at the time that would fight over religion, is they said, okay, we've conquered you. You can keep your gods. And, and we'll even add some of yours into ours, and you add some of ours into yours, and there can be a little bit of... Uh, cultural exchange, right? Mm -hmm. But but we're not going to we're not going to fight over religion. Um, so okay, so here's here's the segue into fourth generation warfare. So fourth generation warfare, um, it's a theory. It's only a theory, and as theories as 
theories are, it's always subject to revision, just like uh, uh, archaeological interpretation. Exactly. Yes. Um, so let's uh, let's describe the first three generations. Uh, I, th I think I think I can do it a little bit more simply than that. Just okay. For the yeah, it would be it would be good to go through that. So. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a long journey where you wind all your way around and then you end up uh, at a completely different spot well, than when you start the one discussion. One way of or, uh, describing the, yeah, the situation is that uh, the, the East India Trading Company fielded armies. It was a mm -hmm. private company that had soldiers. Yep. That idea is strange to us. And that in and itself is, is kind of strange. It's a historically new thing that only states have a monopoly on war, only countries. Right. Basically... Um, it gets really messy during the Protestant Reformation. There's lots of people fighting and killing each other, and it's difficult to un disentangle who's the enemy at any given time. Uh, religions fight wars, companies fight wars, families fight wars, families fight feuds, which are basically many wars. Mm -hmm. And then there's this thing called the Treaty of Westphalia, at which point... In the year 1648, end of the Thirty Years' War. At which point, um, from that time forward, it's really only states that have armies and have wars. They have a monopoly on the use of military force and really a monopoly on the use of force mm -hmm. in general, at, le at least in Western society. And this is the beginning of Generation 1 of warfare. So there's, there's pre-Westphalia that's totally separate, that's non-state actors waging war. Right. And now we have Generation 1, so, which is wine, wine and cannon tactics with uh, muskets. The three generations of war warfare progressed through roughly Napoleonic warfare to World War One, with lots of artillery and machine guns, mechanized warfare, um, up through World War II, Blitzkrieg, maneuver warfare. Those are the first three generations. The thing that sets fourth generation warfare off in the eyes of these theorists mm -hmm. is that it marks the the end of the state's monopoly on force. Right. So uh, where in a, in a Westphalian world, basically, these theorists posit uh, who fights wars? It's nation states. Germany fights a war. France fights a war. Sweden fights a war. Okay, whereas now we have Islamic State, which isn't a mm -hmm. state in the sense of exactly. a, a nation with borders on a map. Exactly. It calls itself a state, but it's not really. Yeah, it doesn't have territory. It doesn't have right. a government precisely. It's not a recognizable nation state. It's, it's an organization of some sort, uh, but a, a loose one. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have also um, terrorist cells, which may be independent even. So... Um, Whereas there was a front between in, in the war between this nation and this nation, there would be a front that would yeah. go this way and that during the mm -hmm. war. Uh, now you think of nodes like there is a nuclear power station. Ooh, what if someone mm. blew it up with a bomb? And you're not thinking in terms of a, a front. You're just thinking about a node that needs defending. Uh, yeah, one of the things that the fourth generation theorists say is that, uh, well, maneuver warfare forward, third generation forward, but, but especially fourth generation warfare is it's nonlinear, right? Mm. Exactly like you say, there's not a border, which is kind of interesting to be thinking about on Hadrian's Wall, right? Which yes. is explicitly a border, um, right? And then I, I really like that idea of nodes. Um, I want to I think about that more. Uh, rather than construing a war as a line, construing it as a network of, of nodes. I don't mm. know, that's really interesting, but I think that's exactly, uh, that, that's exactly what, what these theorists are thinking too. Right, so. and a lot of the... Um, MI5, MI6 and, and, and people like that in Britain are not looking at external enemies so much as externally influenced enemies mm -hmm. within. Um, so not knowing who your friends are, not knowing who your enemies are. That's one of the key differences in fourth generation warfare is a blurring of the line between combatants and civilians. Um, yeah. It's an interesting thing that uh, at the Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War, which you know, is kind of between generations one and two, um, they're using heavy firepower in mm -hmm. terms of artillery, in terms of Gatling guns and such that kind of make it ambiguous. There were people who came to watch it as a picnic. 
there were civilians sitting on the sidelines with picnics to watch the battle. Because there is such a firm line divided between these two state actors fighting against each other, that these civilians are not, they're not on the menu, they're not on the target list. Mm. Whereas, you know, if, if, if you're a terrorist, they're, the line between uh, not state actors and non-state actors is irrelevant. Everyone's a target. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of what you see with terrorist attacks, right? In some sense, the rationale of a terrorist attack on a civilian population is uh, that civilian population, they are actually combatants, right? They actually are legitimate targets in a war because the war is not just between two governments. It's between, let's say, two whole... Ideologies? Ideologies, perhaps, or cultures or nationalities or ways of life, right? It's the... Mm. The, the war is not just political. It's also, I, 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 I'm, I'm really curious about the ideological aspect. Um, the fourth generation, um, one of the things that the fourth generation warfare theorists talk about is uh, that, okay, so if states don't make war, if it's not nation states who are fighting each other, who's fighting who, right? And the answer is perhaps, well, uh, families, religions, cultures, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps private companies. Um, and, and so what, one of the things that... Basically, anyone who's is that, is organized that, enough. Uh, in, in some sense, well, and you can tell me what you think about this, right? This is where I'm hoping your historical knowledge will really come to play. Is that it, uh, hypothetically, from 1648 to roughly the present, or perhaps the 1970s, let's say, right. um, wars in the Western sphere are fought mostly for uh, political, governmental reasons, not for, let's say, deep, visceral, cultural, sort of moral, ideological reasons. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Actually, well, this is the point where maybe if, you, if you're interested, you could try to uh, poke a hole in this theory or modify it a little, which would be interesting. Oh, that's, that's such a toughie because you say this is the reason the war started. Like uh -huh. you know, World War I started because um, some chap in Sarajevo got assassinated. Yeah. Um, well, did it though? Didn't it really get uh, started because um, the Kaiser Wilhelm was spoiling for a fight? But didn't it really get started because there were certain resources that Germany lacked? Mm -hmm. um, I remember seeing um, a, a history of, I think it was the whole world, done uh, on, on television, looking at it entirely through geology. And it explained everything. Why did World War, right the way, World War II, why did it happen? Well, the oil, oil naturally uh -huh. exists here, here, and here. And Germany had no uh, oil fields, but they developed the uh, chemical ability to turn coal into oil, which meant mm -hmm. that they could fight a war, but only a very short one, uh -huh. which meant they had to use blitzkrieg tactics. and blah, 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 uh -huh. you know, So you can actually tell the story of why World War II went the way it did. And think of all the, the, the fights in the East, mm -hmm. um, Eastern Pacific as well. Over, you, we were talking about rubber, weren't we, uh, resources earlier. Yes. Yeah. And again, oil fields. And you can say, oh, well, it's actually because that's where the, geolo the geology uh -huh. defined why these countries ended up being where they were and these people ended up being in these groups and fighting over these resources. It's all down to geology. And geology um, affects the soil. The soil affects the fertility. So you know, these areas are fertile and these are areas are arid and barren. So they go that's another reason to fight over some some area they've got milk and honey and we don't so that's one way of explaining all sorts of things looking uh -huh. at the geology yeah. but then you go ah wait a minute no it's actually it's all about love it's all about breeding humans you know have got to get it's all about security it's all about yeah um it's all about fear that there is there are so many you can almost pick any theme you like and, mm -hmm. and, and trace back the cause of a war to that if sort you really want to. Sort of read history through that lens exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as for what... Uh, you know, I, I <laughs> yeah. rambled for so long, I forgot what your uh, question uh, was now. Um, Poking a hole in about, the theory. It was about causes of wars, wasn't it? Uh, um, 
One of the one of the things that I find interesting is uh, just escape me as a matter of <laughs> opening my mouth. Um, in uh, yeah, it really did escape. Oh, me. literally escaped you. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Gone. You said that, and it's a really interesting thing that it escaped me because um, no, the, so why there's a there are biological reasons that people fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I made a video a while ago about how worried I am. Uh, about the fact that there are, there are going to be s- s- not in the quite uh, near future something like a hundred million more men than women in China. That's so, a reason enough to go to war, right? So that's a hundred million men who stand zero chance of getting a wife. So if you if you are some cult leader, and you can offer that other hundred million men something else mm-hmm. that binds them together and gives them purpose and drive and so forth mm-hmm. uh promise them things maybe access to women from some other country or yeah. whatever i don't know that's a hundred million guys that you could mo- you you could get behind you in some mm-hmm. horrendous terrifying army which would not be a state actor and would have reasons for fighting which have nothing to do with political ends which have to do with something else yeah, it's not precisely it's it's not precisely that uh you know that that parliament or whoever has decided that this is a political objective that needs to be reached instead it's something much more visceral much less mm. controlled much more wild and unpredictable right which is uh, yeah. you know sort of you, 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 who knows if that kind of thing could happen in china and the answer is you don't know but it could now it could happen that that, that cult lead is is religious in in nature yeah. and so a lot of people are saying ah oh, all wars are about religion blah 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 mm-hmm. but then a biologist could say no actually uh-huh. he was able to exploit them because of a deeper underlying mm-hmm. biological urge to breed urge to breed mm-hmm. uh, or at least to have sex um yeah thank you um <laughs> they, and uh you, so again pickle ends and you you can you can come up with an argument yeah. for why that's why people are fighting really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think the fourth generation contention would roughly be that perhaps because, uh, you know, roughly speaking, the Anglo-European sphere has I don't want to say a unified culture, but certainly, you know, we have enough in common that we were able to create the European Union and share a, a common language between the the UK and Commonwealth countries in the United States, right? So there's mm-hmm. there is a fair amount of uh, cultural consensus, right? And, and now, uh, you know, I'm thinking of the Vietnam War, I'm thinking of situations in the Middle East where we are fighting wars or having conflicts with people who are very much outside our cultural, uh, our, our, our cultural sphere, outside our cultural zeitgeist, right? right. And, so, and so there's a resumption of, uh, of all those forces, right? Uh, kind of like you're suggesting, working in, in, in you know, they're, they're all working in tandem, in parallel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it could be biological, it could be religious, cultural, political, so on and so forth. All these levels all operating simultaneously driving war i have a on one of my training swords i have a saying written in latin which was on king louis the 14th i believe's canons it's ultima ratio regum the last argument of kings meaning the canon the canon is the last way you settle an argument right it's interesting to me that there are levels of conflict um there's a lot of verbal conflicts that you're going to have with your siblings with with your spouse with your colleagues at work with whatever that are fairly easy to work through because you understand how to work through that conflict. Okay, I I express how I feel, we talk about it, we both make some, we both agree that in the greater good we make some concessions and then we move forward. And so you can resolve it verbally, you can even resolve it pre-verbally using, you know, just acting annoyed and then correct it if it's small enough. Mm -hmm. But then you proceed up a few levels and then you get to a point where there's 
no way to resolve the conflict without some form of violence, mm -hmm. which is where that canon was. What's interesting to me in this level is that there are still common grounds, particularly with state-on-state -state warfare. There are the rules of war, the Geneva Code, these sorts of things. The, yeah. Basically, we have, even if you escalate the fight to that point where there's bombs and, and bullets, there are still, uh, between nation states, agreements on how far and in what way war is carried out. Mm -hmm. And the only way that continues, the only way that the Geneva Code makes any sense is if, is if this is a common paradigm. I'll, I'll follow these rules if you follow these rules and we'll both be angry at each other well, legitimately for breaking them. humans on both sides. So yes. Yeah, those humans want to fight knowing that they'll get medical treatment and yes. be well treated if they're taken prisoner. And not get gassed or, uh, or whatever. Yeah. And, and you want the enemy to surrender. It's much, much better oh, yeah. that the enemy surrenders than you have to kill him. Yes. Um, it's easier. It's quicker. Um, and as soon as you've got one load of enemies surrendering, that'll encourage more of them to surrender. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, you've won the whole war. So treat prisoners well, because if you don't treat prisoners well, no one's going to surrender to you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and so there are incentives to maintain the modern, this. Terrifying. Um, uh, I'm trying to um, self-sacrificing type. You know, how do you, uh -huh. for instance, you know, if, if you've ever done fencing? Yeah. Yes. Uh, how do you defend yourself against the guy who doesn't mind being hit? Yes, it's That's very, very, really very difficult. hard. You can. So if you're up against an enemy who uh, is actually not just willing to die, that's actually his fighting method, the, you know, like the suicide bomb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how do you... Yeah, there, how is, do you... there is no 100% guarantee against that sort of enemy ever, no matter how many soldiers you've got or how mm -hmm. good their guns are. I think that's because, what... Because his, your goal is to kill him, and his goal is also to kill him, at least partially. Yeah. Right, and so there's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's very difficult to thwart that kind of attack. It, it, one of the things that, one of the ways that I interpret the fourth generation warfare question is along these lines where uh, it's a breakdown on these mutually understood rules of how the conflict works. Um, in fencing, more than half of the game is, more than half of your ability to fence the other guy is the certain belief that you have that one of his goals is to protect himself. Yes. So you, you rely on a shared understanding, and if that shared understanding breaks down, then you can't, you can't frame what it is that you need to do exactly. next. So I faint, uh, and you... Try to defend uh, myself yeah, against only, that faint. I, I do a faint, but you don't. You just stab me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's not what I want. <laughs> you were supposed to try to stop me stabbing you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So you, you, faints only work if yes. the, the other guy doesn't want to die. Yes. He doesn't care. He just stab. And that's why, yeah, that, that's why the, the unskilled and the uh, uncaring fencer is terrifying. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely lethal. You know, in, in that case, uh, there's a certain, if you fence that way, you only fence that way once. And then you remove yourself both from the gene pool and from the <laughs> so, army of the opponent. So there is that. There yeah, is that. That's good. And one wonders then, how do you win? Uh, a fourth, genera fourth, fourth generation fourth war. generation a fourth generation war um, because you can't set set out thinking we're going to win by just killing all of them no because it, it doesn't work you, like you kill one and then oh he killed my brother and then yes. you, you radicalize two more uh -huh. and you yes. kill them and you radicalize four it more it does start to seem counterproductive yeah um, in this case victory actually ends up being as bad as losing and it seems that, you know, this is what happened in Afghanistan yeah uh, it, it seems um, mm -hmm. you've got uh, armies, modern armies like the British and the Americans, who had something like a twenty to one kill ratio. Uh -huh. They were one of our soldiers was killing 
20 of theirs you know, per, per loss that we That's suffered. That's crazy. And yet we weren't winning. It, it doesn't accomplish anything it, yeah, somehow. It, it, it doesn't win the war. So how do you win the war? Uh, the way to win the war is to persuade the other guy to stop fighting. Mm-hmm. Which it's, means you have to... It's, what it's, I'm imagining is... Let's say that the reason for this type of uh, all-out war is a breakdown on the rules of war, a breakdown on a shared understanding of how the conflict works. And basically, you were, you were arguing that um, a certain amount of self-interest drives this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I will treat my prisoners well so that just in case I'm a prisoner, they will treat my prisoners well and we can have exchanges mm-hmm. and, and we can cooperate in the conflict. So there needs to be this kind of meta level of rules. And maybe you have to create a new one in order to navigate fourth generation warfare. It's it's really interesting you should mention that because a lot of the first fourth, fourth generation theorists actually, well, they were military men. And so they actually turned their minds to that very practical question. Okay, we are actually mired in wars in the Middle East mm-hmm. and our opponents do not have the same operating rules as us. How could we start to negotiate operating rules with them? Could we arrange something like the Geneva Conventions with them? So first of all, it's interesting that they turned their minds to that exact practical problem. Right. Mm. How, do, how to renegotiate uh, the rules, rules of meta war. rules, right? Um, the other thing that's interesting is that uh, it's interesting you said, you know, it doesn't work to just kill more of your opponents, mm. right? And that's another thing that the fourth generation warf- warfare theorists have, have kind of uh, hit upon and developed. Um, I'm thinking if it's agreeable to you two, we're probably going to close up now since the sun's going down. Oh, right. Question mark. Is that okay? That sounds pretty right. good. Okay. All right. Um, I'm hoping that we get to resume this conversation at this point. If, if it's okay, I'll, I'll just briefly summarize uh in 15 seconds or less what the fourth generation warfare theorist answer to that question is if that's okay okay certainly go so this comes from colonel john boyd who is a united states air force colonel awesome guy and what he decided was that there's three levels of warfare there's the physical level of warfare the mental level of warfare and the moral level of warfare and you physical level of warfare is when you shoot more of them you don't want to just shoot more of them instead you want to psychologically disrupt them and morally convince them that they don't want to fight Oh, you had three seconds to go. That oh, was good. Wonderful. Wow. I'm, I'm so, astounded. So to clarify what those are, the, the physical level of warfare is shoot the other guy. The psychological level of war is to point the gun at him and say, you really don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And the uh, moral level of war is to say, hey, do you really want to be here? Do you really want to be shooting me? That's not a really good thing to for you to do. To destroy their morale, to destroy their moral commitment to pursue the fight. And it doesn't have to be demoralizing in that it doesn't have to be stick. It doesn't have to be you've lost already. It could also be carrot. Yes. Correct. So, so uh, and, and to bring it back to the Romans, where, where the early, earlier in the conversation, they would say, oh, that god of yours is a bit like our, our god. Tell you what, we'll build a really nice temple for you to, to him. Wouldn't that be good? We've got loads of engineers. And boom, up goes a really nice stone temple with columns and all the rest. And you're also able to say, oh, have you, when was the last time you took a bath? Oh, never. You're really going to like this. Yeah. So what have the Romans <laughs> ever given us? Eh? Yeah. The, the hot, hot baths in a very nice temple. Uh, yeah, well, okay, so we've come full circle. We're back, we're back with the Romans at Hadrian's Wall, and it turns out that perhaps the Romans uh, do know a thing or two about fourth-generation warfare. So uh, that's quite the interesting place to end up. Um, Lloyd, thank you so much for having this conversation with us and for, for touring with us. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, <laughs> I don't know how much uh, how much of you uh, uh, can, how much you can hear the bleating sheep, but there are some very <laughs> loudly bleating sheep in the distance. But they're much further from the microphone uh, than than we are. But uh, yes, there's there's a, a glorious sunset over there, um, and uh, rolling greenery off in all directions. It's a, it's an idyllic spot. So yes, uh, thank you yes. for thank you for. Uh, I wouldn't be here were it not for you. I would I would still be editing some video or something in in, in my room in 
in uh, Newcastle. So we're, we're glad to get anything that saves you from editing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So I think uh, with that, we'll wrap up I, again. A, a link to the Lindy Bage channel will be in the show notes. Um, I'm also secretly hoping, I know we had to cut this off, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that at some point in some form, we'll be able to continue this conversation. I think it's um, certainly fascinating and certainly worth, worth digging into kind of, you know, you could say getting down to the basics of warfare. Um, we want to thank all of you for listening and uh, encourage you to check out our other videos on YouTube as well as Lindy Bage's channel um, and to hit the like and subscribe. Um, again, I want to remind you, I should have said this at the beginning, but uh, we also have the podcast available, um, a link to an audio-only copy of the podcast down in the YouTube description so you can find that and then uh, you don't have to listen on YouTube, you can listen on a podcast platform. So Hang on, so you're telling this, them this at the end of the video. <sighs> they have to watch the whole video to find out how to find the audio version so they don't have to watch it. We'll make sure it's in the description. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Goodbye good, good to and have, good luck. Good, to have you along. Good, uh, good night, everyone, wherever you are. So thank you very much, and we'll see you all next time.